Today on Dramatic Impact, actor, singer, playwright, and director Timothy J. Anderson of Edmonton sheds light on how he comes by his unique combination of gifts and talents. It wasn't until I was actually in my mid-teens, a friend of mine gave me a ticket to a summer concert at the National Arts Centre and there was a Cachaturian work on the program. And the reason I remember it is that I was so overwhelmed by that sound and by the music that Cachaturian had written that I was practically incapable of thinking. I was sitting there in my seat with tears running down my face. I couldn't process what I was hearing. I had Mm. never heard anything so wonderful. Welcome to episode 12. I'm Elaine Elrod. Today we're continuing with the rest of the interview series. In this series, I'm presenting material that was recorded for, but not used in episodes 7 and 8 for Secrets of the Actor. Today we'll hear from Timothy J. Anderson. Timothy is a good friend of mine and is an accomplished actor and singer. He's also a playwright and a published poet, short fiction writer, and novelist. Timothy has a Bachelor of Journalism with combined honors in political science from Carleton University in Ottawa. He also has a Bachelor of Music in voice performance from the University of Ottawa. And he has an MFA in creative writing from the University of British Columbia. Many of Timothy's works have won awards, and his contributions to Alberta were recognized in 2005 when he was awarded an Alberta Centennial Silver Medallion for his work as an artist and advocate. In 2007, he was awarded the Todd Janes Award for Community Service. His theater and music credits include performing as a baritone soloist in the classical repertoire. He has performed at the Winspear Center, Carnegie Hall, and the National Arts Center. He was a member of the original Canadian cast of Phantom of the Opera. He was in the Canadian premiere of The Secret Garden. He was in the world premiere of St. Carmen of the Main at the Guelph Spring Festival. And he was in Kafka's America by Jerry Potter at Northern Light Theatre. Last summer, he performed in his own play, The Etymology of Iroquois, at the Edmonton International Fringe Theatre Festival. Other original works that he has presented at past fringe festivals include The Favorite and The Singing Blade. I think you'll enjoy the interview. You have many different highly developed talents. Among other things, you're an opera singer, a baritone soloist that sings classical repertoire, an actor, a playwright, a librettist, and a director. Could you give us a sense of how you got your start and how your career has evolved to include so many different things? I started by being very loud. I think when I was in high school, I must have just been the loudest of the singers. I was a tiny, tiny uh, kid in high school. I weighed... Oh, 73 pounds in grade 10. But I had a really loud voice. And so I found myself uh, doing the school shows. And at a certain point, one of my friends said, if you're going to do this, maybe you should work on making it sound good. (laughs) 
And she introduced me to a singing teacher, and, uh, and that's the way I started. It just happened I was living in Ottawa at that time, and there were several organizations that needed young singers. So I found myself being hired for events on Parliament Hill, for instance, uh, when they needed young people as part of a sort of youth chorus. So for the Canada Day celebrations, for the repatriation of the Constitution, for the investiture of Jeanne Sauvé, I found myself singing at all of these fairly significant events. So how did you go from having your friend comment that, that you should sound better to singing at all the significant events? Well, Ottawa is not known as a city that has too much rich cultural heritage, in part because when they brought in the National Arts Centre, a lot of culture was imported to be showcased there. But at the time, there were no professional theatre companies in Ottawa. Uh, there was very little happening in terms of Ottawa singers becoming prominent on the national or the world stage. So to have anyone show up who actually had a legitimate sound, who was male and young and interested, uh, that was enough to make people pay attention and to give me the opportunities that I might not have had in a more competitive environment or in an environment that wasn't as concerned with uh, high-profile events. So it sounds like you already had a very nice natural sound and it was just that your friend wanted you to refine it some more? Is that... I actually have a recording, a bootleg recording that my brother made, just a tape recording, of me doing a French art song in an early Kiwanis festival, early in terms of my career. And every once in a while I listen to that, and it's true that I had a very easy, light baritone sound from the beginning. So that's how you started out, was, was in the singing, and then how did that evolve into all of the other things that you've gotten involved in? Well, I had always studied languages. In high school, I studied German, and of course, I had grown up in Montreal, so I, I had also studied French. And in university, I studied Italian as well, in part because of my interest in classical music and in opera. The National Arts Centre was producing operas at that time, and they needed people for the opera chorus. Because I was already singing in a high-level amateur group that performed often at the National Arts Centre, I was asked to audition, and I did, and ended up singing in the operas at the National Arts Centre. I didn't have a background in theatre particularly. I had taken some drama courses in high school, but they tended to focus on relaxation techniques, and I spent a lot of time asleep on the floor. <laughs> so the operas were my first taste of how magical theatre can be when it is well-produced. And I have to admit, it was not the best way, perhaps, to start. A lot of actors come up through a system where they work really hard in low-budget productions, and their, their careers gradually grow. And in my case, I started in these big-budget, huge things that were very exciting, but that perhaps gave me an unrealistic view of how most theatre is produced in Canada. 
what were some of the things that you got used to in well, that environment? The National Arts Center did not lack for money, staff, and frankly, vision. So you had conductors of international repute. You had directors from all over the world. You had huge amounts of money being lavished on the costumes and the sets and, and frankly, the performers. Not those of us in the chorus, necessarily. But it was an opportunity to see how complex opera is as an art form and how amazing it is when all of the elements are given full due. Now I understand that most theaters are looking for places where they can cut any corners they can in order to survive. And in fact, opera did not survive at the National Arts Center. They eventually cut it. It was too expensive. So do you feel that that was your training ground as an actor as well? Well, it was the beginning of my interest in acting. Opera is not usually looked at as the pinnacle of the acting art. In fact, it's often said that, you know, opera singers do not act. I think that that does the current generation of opera singers, and indeed some of the great opera singers of the past, a real disservice. Mm -hmm. What it did do was it made me decide that I needed to actually upgrade my skills. My education began with a degree in journalism and combined honors with political science. Because in my family, you didn't go into the arts. That was something that you did as a hobby, but it wasn't something you did for a living. I decided after my journalism degree that I really needed to get a solid foundation for both my music and my theater interests. So I went to the University of Ottawa for a Bachelor of Music in Voice. And at the same time, I was taking courses in their theater department oh, in acting and theater history. I see. This was important to me because I had seen so many performers who didn't really know how to act. And I didn't want to be one of those. I wanted to be able to do it. So I looked for ways I could fill any of the gaps in my education. I felt that I wasn't getting enough of an education in movement and dance, so I took private classes with Le Groupe de la Place Royale. I did everything I could. Later, I would take fencing classes, not just stage fighting, but actual competitive fencing, so that if I was asked to do fights on stage, I could not only respond to the directions of a stage fight choreographer, but that I would actually know what it felt like to try to win mm -hmm. that fight. Mm -hmm. not, just, not just to go through the motions, but to actually have that sense, that competitive sense of what it means to hold that blade and try to injure your opponent. So all the way through, I've, I've continued to look for educational opportunities that would fill the gaps that I felt were in the educational programs themselves. So did you get your high standards from that experience at the National Arts Center, do you think? I, that's a really good question. I think that that may, in fact, be an element of where that standard came from. I hadn't thought of that, but it is quite possible that that's where that started. And you had said you had an early interest in opera. Just Were you just listening to records? 
No, I actually didn't have much of a classical education before I hit university. Uh, my family was quite musical in terms of church music, mm -hmm. but not much else was happening in the household. I'd had some early piano lessons, which stopped before I even managed to complete grade one of the conservatory. Mm -hmm. I was pronounced hopeless, oh. <laughs> mostly because my hands were too small and, and my fingers were bent and I couldn't actually reach. It wasn't until I was actually in my mid-teens, a friend of mine gave me a ticket to a summer concert at the National Arts Centre featuring the strings of the National Arts Centre Orchestra and there was a Cacheturian work on the program it would have been really the first high-level classical music I would have ever heard live. And the reason I remember it is that I was so overwhelmed by that sound and by the music that Kachaturian had written that I was practically incapable of thinking. I was sitting there in my seat with tears running down my face and I had to be helped out at the intermission. I couldn't process what I was hearing. I had mm. never heard anything so wonderful. Oh. My experience had been restricted to church organists and the occasional amateur saxophone player or whatever who was a member of the church and uh, not a lot of real classical music. From that point on, I knew that I wanted to do that. I wanted to do the music. I've never actually become a very good audience member. <laughs> I really like to participate in making the music. I'm not so good at sitting there just listening to the music. When I sit and listen, I analyze like crazy. Yeah. I do not actually listen to music for pleasure, which doesn't mean I don't receive pleasure from music. It just means that it never occurs to me to actually listen to it for pleasure. Well, that's what they say about dancers when they're watching dance, is that if they, if they actually look at their brains, all of the neurons are firing that would be firing if they were actually performing the moves, the dance moves. I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess they have to train themselves to relax and not do that if they want to enjoy it. So that sounds like a very powerful pull towards music. Um, when you started to explore acting, was there any kind of equivalent pull towards theater? Or what, what, how would you describe your beginnings in theater and acting? I think my beginnings in theater were partly inspired by my experience as a student at the University of Ottawa. I was a mature student in contrast to most because I already had my journalism and political science degree. And there was a part of me that already had an actor's third eye, the ability to stand back and observe what I was doing as I was doing it. And I recognized that too many of the young actors were there for what I considered the wrong reasons. They were there for ego fulfillment. They believed that acting was the way for them to be the center of attention. I believed in acting as an essential component of a transformative art. That through theater we have the opportunity to change people's lives. And I wanted to be a part of that, but I wanted to be a part of that in a way that acknowledged that I was a tool, 
Not that I, it was for my ego, but that it was for doing the art well. And that was always my concern, was that the art be done well. And in that situation, I could see that too many of my fellow students never gave any thought to that at all. Mm. And that disturbed me. So I wanted to ask you, what would be a dream project for you? And I wanted to ask, would you choose to focus on your singing, your acting, your writing, directing, or all of the above in some amazing combination? Almost every interview I've had in the last 20 years has asked me a question that is similar to, if you had to choose, which would you choose? And of course, had I been able to choose or willing to choose, I would not have been doing all of the things I do. For me, all of them are about the communication of the essence of the human condition and trying to maintain some sense of humanity in an increasingly difficult world, difficult and inhuman world in some ways. For me, the dream project for the future, I don't know whether it would be for what I would laughingly consider retirement, uh, the dream project would be to actually write a compelling, commercially viable, because I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, Canadian accessible opera. Mm. And when I say write it, I mean I would like to, to be able to do the music, I would like to be able to do the, the text, I would like to be able to choose the interpretive team and to actually present a unified vision. We have in these complex art forms a tendency to defer to what I think of as a committee mentality. Mm -hmm. And often we've managed to beat the life out of the theater before it ever gets to an audience, particularly our process of workshopping and development. Mm -hmm. So I would like to, in my dream project, I would like to be funded in a way that means I don't actually have to go that route. Mm -hmm. Because I think often we have diluted, blunted, particularly any of the voices that are edgy, difficult. I think often by the time we get to the stage, they've had a lot of their potency removed. And I'm not sure that that's a good thing for our art. I think it's one of the reasons why we are constantly battling a sense of the audiences being ambivalent about our art. I think it's because we encourage that. In the development process, we too often remove the things that we think might be going too far. Yeah. Playing it too safe. Playing it too safe. Part of it is that, you know, the, the young ones who have that fire uh, are also the ones who have to worry about building a career and not alienating people. And it's become very difficult to build a career in this country. I think that the older ones have the vision and often have the fire, but <sighs> they're tired. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they've done it. And they, they look to someone else to provide the energy. 
uh, that can be really difficult. Well, in, uh, in this last episode of the podcast, episode six, there's a panel discussion. And one of the things that's discussed is how in performance creation, maybe you get the chance to keep that immediacy that you don't get to keep when you're a playwright going through a workshop process. That's true. Yeah. Playwrights also need to learn to say no. Mm-hmm. When they are faced with a workshop process where actors who may or may not have done their homework are given a huge amount of power in the say over where they see the, the piece going. And I don't mean to berate actors who do do a good job with workshopping, but I've been involved in a lot of these. I've been involved in them as one of the creative team, either as a writer or as a composer or as a director. I have been involved in them as an actor. And sometimes I am almost speechless at how much power is given to the performers who've been hired for the workshop who prove not to have a clue about what the material is that's being handled. They're very eloquent about how they feel about their particular role. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they're really serving the playwright's needs because I don't think they know how. I don't think they've been educated well enough. I think you have to be really careful who you choose for a workshop. That makes sense. That's all for episode 12. Look for episode 13 at the beginning of December. Thanks to Aaron Sabarin and Mike Sabarin for composing and editing our music. If you need original music for any of your own projects, please feel free to contact them. There's a link to their email address in the show notes. Thanks also to Theatre Alberta for continuing to provide us with publicity for the podcast through their Theatre Buzz email newsletter. If you'd like to receive updates via email when new episodes of Dramatic Impact are available, please send me an email at elaine at actingintheater.com with the word subscribe in the subject line, and I'll add you to our mailing list. I'm Elaine Elrod. So long until next time.